Dove Lipman is a former member of Knesset from the Yesh Atid party and the first American-born member of Knesset to be elected to Knesset in 30 years. He became well-known in Israel for his role in combating religious extremism in Beit Shemesh. He's the author of seven books about Judaism in Israel and a sought-after international speaker. I sat down with Dove in his home in Beit Shemesh to discuss the American-Israeli-Jewish relationship, the integration of Haredim in Israel, the liberal movements in the Kotel, why the state of Israel matters to American Jews, dismantling the Rabbanut, the Jewish religious authority in the state of Israel, and much more. I'm Barack Holman, the author of Figured Out When You Get There, a memoir of stories about living life first and watching how everything falls into place, and a shtickle shalom, a student, his mentor, and their unconventional conversations. And this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. This episode of Jewish People and Ideas is sponsored by JerusalemEverything.com an online Jerusalem artist cooperative which sells high-quality original Jewish art in Judaica at low-cost prices, all made in Israel and shipped from Jerusalem. To learn more, go to JerusalemEverything.com. As a person who's become a bridge between American Jews and Israeli Jews, how do you explain to American Jews, Israelis, and Israelis, American Jews? I definitely feel a need to explain both. Americans come to Israel and they see the roughness and the gruffness that exists in their initial encounters, oftentimes with Israelis, and very much turned off by it, very scared by it, actually sometimes intimidated by it. And I very much use the example of the Sabra fruit, which is the the sharpness and the gruffness on the outside, but so soft and wonderful on the inside. And I always explain that if you have the patience to get past that initial roughness, which is so foreign to Americans, Americans who grew up with, you pass someone, you say, good morning, how are you? And and people who wish each other have a wonderful day. And that is what people in America are used to. But I think it's very surface level in America. And here, if you get past that initial uh, external toughness, you'll find such brotherly and sisterly love and such sincere care and, and a real deep connection uh, that people feel one to the other. And you just have to have that patience to get through it. And it's a very, it's a cultural phenomenon in Israel. On the flip side, uh, Israelis don't have any understanding of, of American Jewry. Uh, they don't understand what Israeli Jews have to do at all with American Jews or Jews in diaspora altogether. They're even on a certain level confused and befuddled by what, what is this connection that they feel to Israel, and I feel a strong need to try to explain to them how much Israel means to them. It's not just on an economic level where they certainly support huge numbers of institutions in Israel, and you drive around Israel and you see ambulances of Magin David Adom with the names of the families in America or elsewhere in the diaspora that donated those ambulances, and it's not even limited to the lobbying on Capitol Hill and the administration and even local leaders uh, on behalf of Israel. But there is a deep value-based connection because Jews around the world want to feel that Israel is their home and is the Jewish state both for people who live in Israel and those who don't live in Israel. And that's the gap which I feel I often have to try to close for Israeli Jews to understand about American Jewry and their connection to Israel. 
And then you, we were talking before, Israelis go on programs to meet American Jews. They're and what shock. do they discover? Yeah, so there's various organizations, and in, even in the Knesset, they brought members of Knesset to meet American Jewry. They bring media personalities, anyone who they view as some, someone who has an influence to meet American Jewry. They are shocked by a few things. They, they are shocked by how deep the passion goes for Israel. I recall numerous times marching down Fifth Avenue with the Israeli delegation, the Knesset delegation. So for me, it's normal to see American Jewry so excited about Israel, but they are in total shock that thousands upon thousands of people are lining Fifth Avenue and waving flags and so uh, loving uh, towards Israel. And they have to understand what that's all about and that that is from this deep desire for a connection to the Jewish state. But there's also just an opening to American Jewry in general, where you have so many different streams and approaches and even you know, within the yeshivas and within the modern orthodoxy and then with conservative and reform. And they all are part of the fabric of American Jewry as opposed to in Israel, where it's pretty much there's religious and there's secular and there's very little intermingling between the two. And now all of a sudden they see a whole new element of, of what American Jewry is all about. And one of the things which I try to show them is what I truly believe, which is that Israel, from my perspective, is very much at the heart of the key to the survival of diaspora Jewry. Uh, there needs to be something which excites them about Judaism and needs to be something which unifies them about Judaism because they are so different in every other way. And I do believe that Israel really can be that glue and Israel can also be that inspiration where they feel like there's something I want to be active about for the Jewish people. So you bring up many interesting things. The first thing that comes to mind is the, the Pew survey, where something like 40% of American Jews are unaffiliated. So when we talk about American Jewry, we're often talking about the people that are very vocal, the Reform Movement, Orthodox, or anti-Zionist groups, which are very vocal. That 40% that's unaffiliated, how does the State of Israel fit into their identity? So that's where uh, it may not fit into their identity, but it should. What I mean by that is, the more we teach about Israel, uh, the history of Israel, the inspiration that Israel should be, removing, not, not ignoring the conflict, but removing it somewhat from the conversation, meaning I don't believe in hiding the fact that we're in a complex situation with the Palestinians, but that complexity itself is important for them to understand. But there's so much else that Israel stands for, which they're not aware of, because all they see is these little sound bites or video clips here or there, which paint Israel in such a negative light. But the moment they start understanding what this history means of a people who held out for 2,000 years to return to their indigenous homeland, of a country that is doing so much good for the world, for them to understand how much of their lives are impacted by Israel and Israel's uh, technology and innovation and, and desire to help, that is something which they can get excited about. Because the idea of being a light unto the nations, the idea of being part of a people who has a, have a destiny to bring good to the world, that excites young people very much. And if Israel can represent that, then all of a sudden there's something which they want to connect to. I always say, you know, I'm a sports fan of my whole life, and you know, there's a reason why people were always the fans of the top teams growing up, right? People want to be with the winners. And I don't mean winners in this case in war, but I mean winners in terms of people, people that are really doing good and having a positive impact on the world. And I think that, especially for younger Jews, the ritual is not going to speak to them. The, the Sabbath and, and dietary laws are not going to speak to them. Maybe some cultural things here or there uh, might speak to them. Hanukkah could be exciting and lighting candles and things like that. But when I speak to the unaffiliated Jews, 
Judaism to them is two things, the Holocaust and fasting. That's wow. what they know about. Wow. That's what they've heard about. And we need to therefore shift that to something really, really exciting and exhilarating and inspiring. And I believe that Israel is the only element of Judaism today which can really give them that. So you bring up something that I didn't have on my notes here. The amount of money that's been put into Holocaust museums and memorials. And I grew up in Miami Beach, and I grew up with Holocaust survivors. And the big hand on Miami Beach, I remember them installing it. How much Holocaust education I got was overkill. If that money, at least half of it, more, was rerouted to Israel education, it would be more effective. I, I agree with you 100% as someone who has been impacted by the Holocaust on, on huge levels in my life. Mm. Uh, both of my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. They talked about it openly. I have this internal inspiration from my great-grandfather, who I never met, who was killed on Shavuot night in 1944 uh, in the gas chambers in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Wow. Uh, we have his Sefer sitting right behind me, which I learned from, and every Friday night we sing a Shalom Aleichem that he composed. And, and, and again, like he's this figure that I tap into, who I never met, never saw a picture of, and grew up in Jewish day schools in North America, where it was Holocaust a lot, right? Uh, a lot. And I grew up in the Reform Movement; it's a lot, right? Uh, and there's no. And again, I, I I certainly believe that we have to have a part of our uh, calendar and our education, which is the never again and understanding what happened. But given the development of the state of Israel, and given what is happening here, that is 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 so much more important at this point. I don't have a problem with saying, look where we've gone from hell to this paradise that's taking place in Israel today, and that should be a source of inspiration. I want children to hear about prophecies coming true. Let them see, open a Bible, right? Not a Bible that's telling them, keep this law or that law. Open up a Bible which says, you are going to be exiled from your land, it is going to remain desolate, you will be scattered to all corners of the world, but a time is going to come when you'll be remembered and you will come back and read them prophecies which describe the ingathering of the exiles. Read them prophecies of the reflourishing of the land of Israel. Let them read the words of Mark Twain in the 19th century where he talks about how desolate this land was and how nothing was growing here. And now let them see what's happening. The ability to see open prophecies coming true and you can be part of that. Uh, that's something which is exhilarating. That's something which is exciting. Show them the prophecies which talk about light unto the nations, and then show them Israeli innovation. There's an organization called Innovation Africa, which is bringing Israeli technology to bring electricity and clean water to remote African villages. Let them see Israel, which is the first to be at any natural disaster anywhere around the world, and that Israel is often the only country with a field hospital all around the world. Let them see all the medical technologies which might be impacting their lives or their own families right now as we speak, and understand that's coming from Israel. Those are things to get excited about. Those are things to be energized about. Those are things to make you feel like I'm part of a real special people. Holocaust just makes me feel like I'm a persecuted, downtrodden people. That why would I want to be part of that team? But if I all of a sudden see there's something else which is happening, and there's a state which does stand for human rights and does stand for justice. And by the way, let them see a speaker, a deputy speaker of the Knesset who's from the Arab population in Israel. Let them see there's a Supreme Court justice from the Arab population in Israel. Let them see that there's a captain of the Israeli national soccer team who's from the Israeli Arab population. Let them see that Miss Israel comes from the Ethiopian population. Let them see the beauty uh, that is Israel and not let them buy into all the negative that they hear. That's something where the money should be spent. 
uh, that would save the Jewish people. Hmm. And, and never again has never, ever, ever been a tool to save us at any time. That's not going to stop anti-Semitism. And that's not going to stop any racism and discrimination, by the way. It all comes down to education. And in our case, I believe this education about who we are as Jews, what core Jewish values should be, and certainly what Israel stands for. So the picture that you're painting, we all should get along. There shouldn't be any strife between the two communities. Because American Jews need the state of Israel. They love the state of Israel. They're excited by the state of Israel. The state of Israel needs American Jews. So why is there strife between the two communities? It really boils down to two issues, one which I think is easier to deal with than the other. The one that's easier to deal with is the issue of the Palestinian conflict, where certainly the overwhelming majority of American Jewry, I believe, has a complete warped perspective regarding it, coming from a narrative which is just not accurate historically. I'm fine with an even-keeled presentation about the conflict. I can understand people who want to be critical about Israel handling this aspect or that aspect. That's okay. But there's this line that's crossed with this outright anti-Israel bias, which paints Israel as the aggressor and the conqueror and the ones who are persecuting another people, which is devoid of any reality regarding what's happening here. And I want to be clear, a person can be left-wing politically. There's there's a legitimate stance that anyone can have, but when it's painted as uh, Israel, as the one that needs to somehow back off from something, which I'm not even what, it's a real problem. I go to college campuses. And I present the fact that in 1937 with the Peel Commission, in 1947 with the UN Partition Plan, 1967 after we won the territory in a defensive war and offered it all back. And every time we've made offers, and in 2000 in Camp David, and 2005 pulling out of Gaza, for them to understand the steps that Israel has taken to try to find a way to, uh, uh, to put aside this conflict and just live side by side, They are in shock when I present that to them, that we're the ones who have always been offering the olive branch. And when it's been accepted, like by Egypt and by Jordan, it's not simple for us to do so. uh, We've done so. And that part of the story is not told. They're told of a people who came and and conquered a people that didn't exist. Uh, When I show to them that Jews in Israel were called Palestinians, and the Jerusalem Post was called the Palestine Post, and talk about the numbers and how everything worked, they're in shock. When I talk about the violence against Jews way before there was a state of Israel, uh, when I talk about the fact that the Palestinian Liberation Organization was established in 1964, three years before the Six-Day War, three years before there was any settlement, for them to understand that from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free means no state of Israel. If that's the stance you want to take, then I want to attack, I want to challenge your liberal progressive mind and understand why is there any country in the world where Jews can't live? All of a sudden, there's a place that could be Judenrein and put them in that corner of understanding what the ideology they're submitting themselves to really believes in. That's a real conversation which can then attack all the narrative that they've been told all along. And we have to address that. That's what I'm saying. I don't want to sweep away the Palestinian conflict because they have such a distorted perspective, which doesn't even allow them to begin to appreciate Israel. And a lot of the tension is over that issue. Because in in a liberal progressive mind, how can I possibly associate or support a state which I'm being told is such an aggressor and so discriminatory and racist? So we have to address that. And that's part of the education as well. That's part one. And that's easier in my mind to address. Part two is much more difficult. And that is on issues of religion and state. By the way, I don't believe it's the overwhelming majority. Uh, You know, the the 40% that have no connection to Israel 
might not even be aware of this challenge. But there is a challenge in Israel today, and that is we do have a political system which does give uh, a lot of power to smaller, more narrow uh, parties with more narrow interests. And legitimately, Haredim live here, they're citizens here, they vote democratic elections, and they have their representatives who are fighting for their perspective on what Judaism in Israel should look like. And I'm going to say it again, that is their legitimate right to do in a democratic country. I don't believe that the, I know for a fact that the majority of Israel doesn't see that Judaism should be that way and believes that things should be more embracing and more open. I'll even use the word pluralistic. Just let Jews feel comfortable in Israel and there's no reason for us to get into some of those issues. But that's, those are the issues which definitely turn off certainly reform and conservative Judaism in the United States. Now, I said some of those issues because there are some issues where we can't just say, everyone do whatever you want to do. When it comes to conversion, when it comes to marriage, it's more complicated than that because we don't want to all of a sudden become you know, a hundred different types of people within one country. I do believe we have to make an effort to try to find one unique perspective, an approach that can work for all. But there's no simple solution to that. I will tell you, when I speak in North America, in Reformed temples or in conservative synagogues, I do mention, I do mention that if one million Reformed Jews picked up and made Aliyah, then all of a sudden they would have a very strong political voice, which could play on the same playing field as the Haredi parties. And then all of a sudden you have a democratically elected right. Again, I say that from a place of sensitivity, and I say that from a place of someone who it hurts me that we're not able to make progress on this issue uh, in Israel. But at the same time, I think it's an important message to share that this is not some kind of dictatorship where all of a sudden someone's coming in and, uh, and, and bringing in these policies. It's based on democracy. It's based on Israel's parliamentary system. And that's why they have this say. And that could change if there really was a, 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 a body of voters in Israel who wanted something different as their number one priority. American Jews are one of the few diaspora communities. First of all, there really aren't any major diaspora communities left besides American Jewry. The Russian Jews maybe were the last major, we're talking millions of people. They just don't exist anymore. They're either here in America or spread out all over the world. In one of the podcast episodes I did with Yossi Klein Levi, he said, there's no more exile. The galut is over. And I said, how can you say that? Mashiach's not here. He said, because now everyone has the choice to move here. Nobody's forced to stay where they live. And American Jews choose not to move here. They can move here easier than anyone else in the world. Can manage your bank account in America from here. I have a job in America. I have one in Israel and one in America. You can run everything pretty much that you want to from over here. It's easy. But they choose not to move here. So why are we catering to a community that says, embrace us, but we're not moving there? And like you said, we have Haredim that do live here, and they say, this is what we want. It's a, it's a very strong question. For me, it does come from a place of valuing the unity of the Jewish people and also understanding that the state of Israel, yes, should be the home for all Jews. That's certainly the ideal. And I always point out the Declaration of Independence, it, it, it does say it's a call, there's a call there uh, to Jews all around the world to come and be part of what's happening here. I wrote a book called Coming Home, where it lays out with clarity all the sources within Judaism about the centrality of Israel in Jewish tradition and Jewish thought. And I always say, growing up in an Orthodox Jewish day school environment, I was robbed of all of that. Hmm. Uh, You know, I was taught about the Chafetz Chaim, as an example, and the laws of Lashon Hara, about not gossiping. 
but no one ever showed me what the Chafetz Chaim wrote about his passion to move to Israel and how he moved to Israel, but along the way, his wife got sick and he had to go back to a hospital in Vilna and how he writes later the pain that he feels over the fact that he didn't move here. I didn't know about that when I was growing up and I didn't see generation after generation after generation of the greatest rabbis saying this is where every single Jew should be making their home, especially if they have the opportunity. So uh, on the one hand, I'm very much from the camp of asking every single Jew to, at, very, at the very least, explore the idea of moving to Israel. I do understand that there are times and places where it's not necessarily the right move for certain families at certain times. But then I say, so raise your children with that value that your children will move to Israel, and then you can join them uh, in retirement. I love telling the story. Uh, when I was running for Knesset, there was, uh, I was number 17 on the list that was polling at about five or six seats at the time. It wasn't really a real list. There was one person who believed that I was going to be elected to Knesset, and that was my mom, who, <laughs> who, like a good Jewish mother, she made Aliyah in order to vote for me in the That's election. That's amazing. And now that she's here for a good part of the year, Retirement in Israel is glorious. It beats any century village in Florida. And, and her life here is full with her husband, and they do so much, and they're always engaged. So I always say, so raise your children to make Aliyah, and then make this your retirement destination, and then your family is here. So I do very much push that. I speak about it. I write about it. And I don't hold back about it. At the same time, they're my fellow Jews, and they're my brothers and sisters, and I care about them. And I'm not here to judge anyone as to why they aren't doing what I would believe someone should do. And as someone who lives in Israel, I do want to make sure that Israel plays that central role in their lives in order to keep the survival of our people going in places where it's not so simple and it's a real struggle. So you mentioned the Kotel, and I don't know if you, actually, I don't know if you mentioned the Kotel. I didn't mention it, but it's But in my head, I heard the Kotel. (laughs) It's okay, sure. Because that was such a big deal. I mean, part of this podcast started to figure out why is it so important for the reform movement to have their own spot at the Kotel. I spoke with Natan Sharansky about it. I spoke with Eric Yoffe, the former head of the reform movement, about it. And the bottom line was, Sharansky said they don't need it, but we're giving it to them anyhow, because if it'll keep a Jew connected to Judaism, it's worth it for me. Eric Yoffe said, we need it because we want a foothold in recognition in the state of Israel. We are 100% equal to Orthodox Jews, and we deserve everything that Orthodox Jews have, including conversion, including marriages, including everything. And I said to him, but the Reform Movement doesn't have any standards. You don't have halacha. It doesn't matter. So we built a section of the Kotel for them. They don't come. It's empty. What was the point? Uh, I very much identify with what Natan Sharansky said. I really do. I, I, I do believe that there is a place where you make a statement and you say, listen, I mean, we'll give you a place. And I, I, I was in favor of it. I was in favor of it. If they were asking to take the main Kotel Plaza and turn that into an egalitarian place, I would be the number one voice against that. But if they're saying, we want to have our own place, it won't disturb you, you know, for those who have, a, who have trouble seeing it, whatever it is, it's not going to be right next to them. I'm totally comfortable with that because I do believe we need to try to find a way to make everyone feel at home here and comfortable here. I'm not going to be checking to see how many people are there. I don't want to make an issue about it. That's, not, you know, that's, that's also part of politics is to stir the pot. The goal is Avat Israel. We love our fellow Jews. And as long as you're not going to disturb what's clearly the primary mode of worship at the Kotel, I, I believe that we should facilitate the ability for you to have what you have. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. If there's a young Jew 
who is used to uh, the way prayers are done in their temple or their synagogue, and they want to come to Israel for their bar mitzvah or their bat mitzvah, I want that to be a meaningful experience, which they connect to. And I want Israel to be a place which they love and want to think about coming back to, to serve, to study, to live. And in order to do that, we do have to make those uh, accommodations, which I do believe giving them their section uh, accomplishes. So you always have to zoom out and, and think in terms of the Avat Israel and think in terms of what gives people the connection to Israel, as long as it's not disturbing other people who feel that they have the connection in a different way. So now we're all getting along because there's a section for them, an egalitarian section. They have no more claims. That's it. I, I feel that in terms of the Kotel, mm. if there's any more claims that are being made, I don't think that's fair. In other words, saying, but it's not this way, but it's not that way. Again, I can understand the debate, but no, so obviously they want more. It's not just a Kotel. It's about you know, policies in Israel as well. One of the things which I do explain to American Jewry is that you don't have this overwhelming demand for reform or conservative in Israel. It exists. It exists in small numbers, and they have temples, and they have whatever it is. And, and I, I do believe there's a way we can find a way for the reform rabbi to do a, a wedding, as long as certain frameworks are kept in terms of halakha. We can find a way to negotiate about that if we're willing to talk to each other. But I don't believe that you come to Israel and say, we're demanding something within Israel, which in Israel you don't really see a demand for. I had a conversation with a member of Knesset about this, and they said to me that the shul, but they said it to me like very, very seriously, that the, the, the shul that I don't go to on, on Shabbat is an Orthodox shul. That's the kind of shul that my grandfather had. And, that's, and if I go, I'll go there and I'm comfortable with that. It's a very interesting uh, dynamic that the secular Israeli culture, most of them, don't see a burning need for it. I will tell you, there are some secular Jews who go, let's say on Shlichut, they go to America and they go to a community where there is a reform temple and they like it. Mm-hmm. They feel more comfortable. And, and I, my perspective is, come to shul, be connected spiritually, be connected ritually on whatever level it is. And I think that's important. So you know, in terms of what are the list of demands and, and how do we meet them, it is very much a political issue. And that's why I always come back to that point about Israel as a democracy. So if there's things that I can do uh, to make it easier, make it more comfortable, then I want to do that because I do love all of my fellow Jews. And I do believe that Israel has to be a place where all fellow Jews can feel comfortable. Uh, when it starts getting to issues of legislation and, and, and halacha in terms of who's a Jew, who's not a Jew, etc., then there has to be a conversation between all the different parties. And it can't just be that things are somehow forced through because of the force of American Jewry. If I understood you correctly in something that you wrote, do you want to dismantle the rabbinut? Is, I, well, is that what you, now you did write, we yes. have to dismantle the rabbinut. Yes. The way, what uh, did you mean by saying that? I meant that as a member of Knesset, I was exposed to certain things which demonstrated to me that an institution that was initially established to be embracing and to be an umbrella and something which brought all Jews in Israel together at this point in time is actually doing the opposite. It's actually pushing Jews away. It's actually shutting doors. And I believe that that's a horrific, horrific development. So I love the idea of there being a rabbinic body which is there to show the beauty of Judaism and to be embracing, and to be educational in nature, and to be loving, and to bring all Jews into the camp. But what I saw, I almost felt like it's too difficult to fix the current institution. Probably is. And therefore, when something is so rotten to the core, and I want to be clear, there are rabbis in the rabbinate who are wonderful people, 
who are loving and embracing and well-meaning, but as an institution, that's not the situation. I don't see any way of fixing it other than tearing it down and then trying to rebuild something which really stands for what the rabbinate was originally supposed to stand for. You think it's possible? Politically right now, it's not. But now I'll give you uh, the way I see that we can work forward on all of this. I'm very, very involved in various projects for the integration of the Haredim into Israeli society. That's general studies in high school. That's army projects. That's helping them get training and go to work. When Haredim begin the process of becoming a part of Israel, something happens in terms of them being more moderate regarding the politics. They are still Haredi. They're still fervently observant, and I would never want to touch that. They still believe that Torah learning is the highest value, and I certainly would never want to touch that. But their perspective on secular Israel, or broader Israel, I should say, is very different. The rest of Israel is not the devil as they have, has been portrayed to them. By the way, the reverse happens as well. Mm-hmm. Broader Israel sees Haridim, and they say, wow, these are really wonderful people who are value-centered, and I can be friends with them. There's an amazing thing that happens, that happens when they can have interface one with the other. But once Haridim start becoming part of society, they're not voting politically. This is always my theory. They're not going to vote politically the way the, they've always been told they have to vote. And I always felt that that would be the case. And I now have two proofs to that. One is the fact that despite the fact that the Haredim are growing way beyond the rest of Israel with an average of seven children per family, which is wonderful that Jews are being born in Israel. What a blessing. The political parties are not growing at that pace. The same elections, one after another, the same numbers, they stay where they are. And that's, I really believe, because the younger generation is not voting for uh, the Haredi parties. But I have a proof from right here in Beit Shemesh, where just two years ago, we had elections for mayor. I'll never forget Aliza Bloch, who was the candidate for mayor then, a, a religious Zionist woman with a PhD. She said that she wanted to run for mayor, and she asked for my support. And I said, I support you, but because I'm the big political expert, right? I said, you have no chance. Beit Shemesh is now a majority Haredi. You have a two-time incumbent mayor from the Haredi community, with the rabbis all saying everyone has to vote for him. You have no chance. And there we were on election night. And Eliza Bloch won, and she won with thousands of votes from the Haredi community, including, I think, about 5,000 Haredim who didn't even vote, and that was their way of enabling that to happen. Those are the Haredim who weren't voting based on what the rabbis told them, but based on who did they think was the best person to run Beit Shemesh. And those are the young Haredim who are working, who are getting general studies, who are serving, and that's where that change is taking place. So why am I saying all that? That was a long way of saying that the opportunity will arise politically where the Haredi parties won't always be the kingmakers in, in a coalition, and there will be opportunities to make certain policy changes, which can be more embracing, where all of a sudden the rabbinate maybe can be chipped away. And you can reach a point where we do build some kind of a new institution, which serves the role that it was viewed to have, ro- have served when it was first instituted. And I do think we need broader Israel to see loving rabbis, embracing rabbis, the derecheha darche noham of Judaism, and everyone can find their place, and that we are here to bring you in and not to close the door on you. So how do you f- define a Haredi? What is somebody who's Haredi? Yeah, there really is no definition at this point, because I, on a daily basis, I'm working with people who define themselves as Haredi, and one of them is in the Haredi Hezder Yeshiva, where he's, you know, they're learning morning and afternoon for three years, and at nighttime they have training in computers, or electronics, and then years four and five, they get up in the morning, put up an an Israeli army uniform, go serve, and come back at night for night seder in yeshiva. They view themselves as Haredi. It's the guys that I work with in this amazing organization called Avodot L'Charedim, 
We've helped over 80,000 Haredim get training, get jobs, support their families with dignity. They view themselves as Haredim. Haredim are uh, uh, Menachem Bambach, who started a Haredi network of yeshiva high schools, which teach general studies uh, at the highest of life, giving them bagriot. They view themselves as Haredi. So Haredi means, literally, it's from Hared Ledvar Hashem, someone who trembles for the word of God, which, by the way, can apply to a large part of the religious Zionist community uh, as well. So I don't even know how to define that anymore. If you would ask some within the Haredi establishment, they would say it's someone who follows every single word that's said by the Gdoli Torah, by their Torah giants, to a T. And then the question is going to be, which Torah giant? Right? During Corona, we had a word coming from Rav Chaim Kenyatsky that said one thing, and a word from Rav Edelstein saying something else. We have word from the Sephardim saying that. So what does that mean? It's very confusing. And by the way, what I'm describing to you right now is what the Haredi community is going through right now. They're going through this process of trying to understand what is happening in their community. Sitting right here at this table, right next to me, soon after I was elected to Knesset, a big, well-known Haredi Rav came to meet with me at 12.30 in the morning, and he sat here, and he said to me, keep doing what you're doing. And I said, what? He said, this was the language. He said, you're saving us from ourselves. We need like an outside force to help. By the way, politically today, if this uh, anti-Netanyahu government is formed, I don't know if it will, but let's say, you know, whatever happens, they're talking about possibly passing the draft legislation of the Haredim to the army, right? And many people in the Haredi community are telling me, we hope they do it. We hope that there's a government without the Haredim so that the Haredi political leaders can yell against it. But we hope this law passes because this is a law that was developed by the defense ministry based on what their needs are on the army. No one's going into any yeshiva and pulling out anyone who's learning Torah day and night. Uh, I'll tell you, go even further. In 2014, when we passed the legislation drafting the Haredim, so we were told by one of the rabbis before, we met with all the rabbis leading up to it. And one of them, by the way, said that 60% of the boys who are in yeshiva past a few years don't belong there anymore. That's what he said, because they want Torah tom, not tom means that all you want to do day and night is learn Torah. Those are the people who are exempt from doing anything else. But anybody else, go serve in the army, go work, go do something else. So they told us that after we pass the law, there's going to have to be a demonstration no matter what. If they're unhappy with the law, it's going to be a demonstration where the rabbis are going to be up and screaming against the czarist Israeli government, okay, fire and brimstone. If they're happy with the law, it's going to be a prayer rally in Jerusalem. That's interesting. And we passed the law, and there was a prayer rally. Not <laughs> one speak against the government. And for me, that was the wink from the rabbanim saying, this law ain't so bad after all. It makes, it makes sense. And therefore, what I'm trying to say is, what is a Haredi is in a flux. They don't even know how to define it right now. And they also understand that there has to be some level of widening that camp, or else they're going to lose huge percentages of the camp. I want to spend an, another couple minutes on who is a Haredi. Because I think part of the Haredi identity is anti-Zionist. So you mentioned the Chavetz Chaim before. The Chavetz Chaim wasn't making Aliyah to the state of Israel. He was moving to the land of Israel. And I think the Haredi, at least that I've encountered, they're here in the land of Israel. The state of Israel is not important to them. So is that part of the Haredi identity, being anti-Zionist? It's very important whenever talking about these topics to go back historically to understand what happened here. Let's remember that in the late 18th century, the Baal Shem Tov and the Vilna Gaon sent students to the land of Israel. They sent them here not to build a state, not even to build an agricultural society. They sent them here to be the spiritual emissaries of the Jewish people. 
and they were supported by world Jewry, especially European Jewry. And they were living here as very holy, in very holy lives, starting up north, Tzfat, Tiberia, that area, and eventually towards Yerushalayim. Then all of a sudden, from their perspective, secular Zionism comes in and defiles the land of Israel. All of a sudden, you have Jews who are bringing in a completely new Judaism, devoid of Torah and mitzvot, and they have to really decide how to deal with this. What do you do about this development? And I believe 1913, Rav Yosef Chaim Zonnefeld, who was the head of the Haredi community in Yerushalayim, and Rav Cook went on a journey together around to all the kibbutzim that were developing all around Israel. And they had two very different uh, outcomes regarding that journey. Rav Zunnenfeld said, these people are eating pig. They're not fasting on Yom Kippur. There is no hope. We cannot deal with these people. And that developed the Haredi perspective of circle the wagons. We will have nothing to do with this developing state. Rav Cook said, there's one place where we convince them to have a kosher kitchen. And there's another place where we convince them to have prayers on Yom Kippur. There's hope if we stay engaged with these people. And that essentially established the religious Zionist path in terms of involvement with the state and always wanting to be involved in the education ministry and to have an influence over what's happening in the state. Two paths that went very different ways. There's no doubt that in the very beginning of the state of Israel, people who I certainly revere for what they've done, David Ben-Gurion, and they were anti-Torah. They were anti-mitzvot. They were anti-Jewish ritual. Uh, we, didn't, we don't have the name God in our Declaration of Independence. There have to be a compromise made, and it says, Rock of Israel, Tzor Yisrael. So the religious side can say that's God, and the secular side can say that's the might of the IDF or the Jewish mind or whatever it is. But something has changed in 73 years. And the Haredi community, who may have seen themselves in a very, very important battle in 1948 to fight against this evil secular Zionism from their perspective, it has changed. Secular, quote-unquote secular Israel is no longer where it was. If they were writing a Declaration of Independence today, it would absolutely say God in big, bold letters uh, from the secular side of Israel. There's a small remnant of extremists that, that, are, that are still anti, but for the most part, 100%. I will never forget my first election campaign event. One of the first events was Hanukkah. And I was asked to light the Hanukkah candles because I'm the rabbi there. And I said to myself, you know what, let Yair Lapid light the Hanukkah candles. So they went to Yair and they asked him, and he said, I lit at home with my family, why should I light again? And I was shocked. I didn't know this about secular Israel, that there's a deep cultural element of Judaism, which is part of their lives. Lighting Shabbat candles, making Kiddush, certainly having a Pesach Seder, certainly fasting on Yom Kippur, in very high numbers. And now Shavuot night, secular Jews all around Israel, in the thousands who stay up all night learning Torah in movie theaters, because there's a real thirst. Things have changed. A lot of secular Israelis who I talked to say that it changed in 1967. That in the Six-Day War, secular, even secular Israelis said, wait a minute, there's other forces at work over here. This can't mm. just be the IDF. And something started awakening. And I feel that Haredi Israel is still, the establishment, is still fighting a battle against what they see as a, as a body that's trying to make Israel secular, which is just not true. It's just not True. And as the Haredim start becoming a part of Israeli society, they see that. They see that no one's trying to make them secular. Uh, the army is not trying to make them secular. The army is giving them their own units where they learn Torah, three, uh, they daven three times a day, they have prayer services every day, they have eight different hashkachos in the army now to make sure that they have exactly the kashrut that they want. That's where we are today. It's a very, very different place. And therefore, the whole notion of Haredim being anti-Zionist that's built on a perspective of the state of Israel at its core being anti-religious and seeking to get people who are religious to be secular. 
that's no longer the battle anymore. Mm-hmm. And therefore, little by little, Haredim are starting to see that. And that's why now all of a sudden you see Haredim who are having memorial service and Yom HaZikaron commemorations. You're seeing Haredim who are starting to see Yom HaTzma'ut, Independence Day. They might not say Hallel, because there's a halachic questions, whatever it is, but they understand the magnitude that something special has happened here. They might say, we hope the state would be more religious than, than it is right now, but it's very, very different. The anti-Zionist camp that would call themselves anti-Zionist is now very much limited to very much the Satmar camp, where it's a, we have to wait for Mashiach to come before we can even be in the land of Israel. And, but other than that, and it's really a small group of the extreme, the average Haredi on the street they might not be a flag-waving Zionist like we might be, but they're also not anti-Zionist anymore. I dive in a Haredi shul. I've been diving there for 20 years. Like Meir Sharim Haredi in Nachlaot in Jerusalem, the, the Haredi neighborhood. So I'm exposed to it all the time. I can tell you, those guys are a full-on anti-Zionist. I guess maybe there's an old Haredi and there's a new Haredi. There's definitely uh, certainly groups, right, that are that way. But let me ask you a question. Are they, maybe they are. Are they burning flags? No. Are they fasting on Yom Ha'atzma'ut? For sure not. Right. So that, that's the, the... But they don't stand during the siren on Yom HaZikaron. Okay, but that, I can tell you, the siren on Yom HaZikaron is changing. It's changing in very high numbers. Again, change takes time. I always say, I'm not, I'm not going to live to see the end of this process because this is a two, three generation process, maybe even more of a society. You can't change a society head on. You'll, you'll have a civil war if you do that. But if you give a society opportunity... Here, I'm letting you work without wanting to change you at all in terms of being Haredi. They'll take advantage of it. Now you have high-tech companies all around Israel that are offering kolel in the morning and working in the afternoon. IDFs, like I said before, we have a Haredi Hezder Yeshiva, which I was so blessed to be part of establishing on the Knesset side. Uh, Haredi units in the army. Uh, there's, there's a process which is taking place where if we are willing to meet them and say, we understand your values, you will not have a female commander in your units. We're willing to give you separate programs in college that are separate men and women meet them where they are, they do want to take advantage of those opportunities, and that will lead to the change over time. It's going to be slow, it's happening slowly, and you can already, I can already see the direction uh, in which it's going in, and that's going to be a massive change for Israel, because my hope and dream is that Israel be a country which is filled with Haredi lawyers, uh, accountants, doctors, uh, high-tech entrepreneurs, and even generals in the army. And it's going to come. It is going to come. It's just a process that has to take time, and broader Israel has to be open to both the gradual nature of it and also being as accommodating as possible as that happens. That's very interesting. Regarding the army, so I served in the army, and as a, a religious Jew, I'm not in a Haredi unit, I don't even know if there were Haredi units back then, there was so much partying, smoking, drinking, sex, flirting. It, it was a, a, an embarrassment for me to be there. And I thought about Haredi guys, like the guys from Meir Shirim. How can you take a guy like that and stick him in an environment like the army? So two things. First of all, I'm not in favor of doing that. I'm not in favor of taking someone who doesn't want to be in the army and putting them in the army. I'm not. I do believe there's a way they can do national service. There's enough places in Israel where they can volunteer uh, for a certain period of time and be part of it. But by the way, I'm also fine with defining their Torah learning as their service. As long as they're learning Torah day and night as their only pursuit that they want to do, that's wonderful. We need people learning Torah. And I do believe that our success as a country comes from the spiritual side. I really do. So we need that. And that's part of their service. But to allow those who want to serve, and by the way, I remember during Sukaitan in 2014, I got a call from Haridim. I was a member of Knesset, and they said they wanted to meet with me. So I went to some park in Givat Shmuel at 2 o'clock in the morning, 
And 40 18 and 19 year old Hasidim came to this park and they were talking with me and they said, We feel guilty. We wow. Fe- we feel guilty right now. We feel guilty that there's young men our age who are on the border of Gaza and I'm sitting in Yeshiva and I'm not really learning Torah. And they said, We will serve in the army if you give us a framework where I don't have to leave the Haredi community. They said it outright to me. And I said, What does that involve? And they said, Literally what I just said before we have to have Torah learning every day, we have to make sure that we can daven every day. We don't want to have the exposure to the women. Anything that you can do, we can be together ourselves, we're in. And that is the accommodation which has to be made. By the way, I agree with you about the environment of the Israeli army in general. I mean, the army in general is not in tune towards spiritual growth. My son served in the army in a Hezder unit. He went with his shear to Golani. And then when he became a commander, it became a much bigger challenge because now he was a commander of a unit that wasn't of his shear. Hmm. And it was real work. It was real effort. Thank God he had a few years of yeshiva and time in the army with his shear to help him with that. So I don't believe in closing my eyes and not saying that there aren't real challenges. And that's why I would never, ever, God forbid, say, throw Haridim or anybody religious into an environment which is going to be detrimental to them spiritually. But let's create those frameworks. Let's make sure they're real. Let's make sure we're really going to give them the, the needs that they need spiritually. And then at that point, I'm comfortable saying, if you want to serve in the army, come. If not, find another way to serve, whether that's through your Torah learning or whether that's through other forms of national service. Does that exist yet, a Haredi unit like that? Yes, absolutely. I've, it, what I've, is it I've, called? I've visited them. Uh, I've, I've seen them. First of all, there's Shachar Kachol, which is in the Air Force, where it's usually older guys. So it's not when they're 18 years old. They've okay. been in yeshiva for a few years. They serve in the Air Force. They're taught, like I said before, electronics, engineering. They serve in uniform. They have learning every day. They have all the conditions that I just mentioned. And these guys are thriving. The Haredi Hezder Yeshiva are boys who want to learn Torah uh, for a few years after high school. Morning and afternoon, they have, it looks like a regular yeshiva. You walk in there, you would not know uh, the difference. At nighttime, instead of night seder, they have training. And then years four and five, it flips. They finish not only having served in the army, but also with a college degree and learning Torah on a high That's level. Amazing. And it's an amazing, amazing program. We opened up Nacha Haredi units in... Nacha Haredi, when it first started, was very much for kind of Haredim who were on their way out of the mm-hmm. Haredi community. It wasn't really very strong. But now we're starting to have units within the Tzanchanim, within others, which are very, very strong in nature. And they're given everything that I just said. And by the way, when they're not given those conditions... I'll be one of the first to fight against it. You know, you have to make sure that they're given what they're promised. So I don't believe that army is the goal per se, but I do believe that integration is the goal, that they be part of Israel, because that's where incredible things start happening. When a Haredi starts supporting his family with dignity and not relying on handouts and just sitting around, they feel great. They raise their children differently. Their children will probably have general studies in high school and remain Haredi within that framework. When a Haredi goes to work, and starts meeting secular Israel, there's a unity level that takes place, which I believe Israel so desperately needs, uh, where they start meeting each other and realizing, like I said before, we can be friends with one another even if we don't live the same way of life. Are there challenges along the way? Of course there are. Of course there are. There was challenges for me when I was in Nair Yisrael in Baltimore and I had to go to Johns Hopkins at night for school. I, as a Ben Torah, had to deal with those challenges. And that's part of the world that God put us in. God didn't put us in a world where we're supposed to go to an island by ourselves and be spiritual. He said, be part of a physical world and be spiritual. That requires preparation, years of yeshiva, rebbeim who guide you, and that's exactly what we're talking about. But that process, I truly believe, will not only save broader Israel, but will also save the Haredi community. It's a beautiful picture that you're painting. I hope it's happening. I hope it's, I hope it's real. <laughs> I, I, I'll say it this way. I do tend to be a very optimistic person. Yeah. 
But at the same time, I think you have to have that vision in your mind to help drive change to get there. Uh, I would not have been able to be part of starting Avodot L'Charidim, which now I look back seven years later, 80,000 people that we've helped get jobs working with CEOs all around Israel. I just got the report from this past month. We helped hundreds of guys get jobs with Intel and Microsoft and Bega Poalim and, and the Ministry of Labor and Wealth. We're helping people get real jobs. That's amazing. Um, you have to believe, you have to dream in order to believe that that was happening. The Haredi Hezder Yeshiva was the dream of a rabbi named Rabbi Karmi Gross. He had this idea. I was on the Knesset side fighting for all the approvals, which were not easy to get. But because he believed that it could happen, now it's happening. So I think you have to have that optimistic sort of dreamy approach in order to actually get changed, uh, to, to, to help initiate the change to happen. Just two more questions. So the second to last question is, how much influence do you have as a member of Knesset? I live near the Knesset, like literally 15 minute walk from the Knesset. I feel like it's a miles away. It's worlds away. What kind of influence do you have when you're there? So as an individual member of Knesset, your overall influence is limited. You do have the opportunity to work on, I'd say, one to three laws in a term that could really make some kind of a change in people's lives. And you have to really focus on what those are, are going to be. And that is a change. You could look back and say, I've made a change, which is an amazing thing to be part of. It's what a blessing to be able to not just sit back and complain about what's happening in your country, but actually roll up your sleeves every day and go to work for it. But you also have a platform. People are willing to hear what you have to say. Every single day, there are secular, there are schools throughout Israel that come to the Knesset. And I always told my staff, I want to speak to those schools and especially the secular schools. And on a day, almost daily basis, I had an opportunity as a religious Jew, to speak with secular Israel and have that conversation. That's a very important platform uh, where you can not, it's not policy change per se, but it is engaging in really important conversations, which can absolutely have an influence on the direction of the state. I was also blessed with the platform in terms of being a mouthpiece for Israel around the world, where now all of a sudden, just because I have that title before my name, I'm able to go to parliaments around the world and meet with members of parliament, even speak to groups in the parliaments on behalf of Israel. Uh, that's that's a real opportunity uh, to to influence. Now, did that change world policy towards Israel? I don't think so. Uh, did it indiv- influence individual members of parliament? And did it impact certain policies? I really do believe in certain cases it did, especially when it was very targeted uh, in nature. So I did see it as an opportunity to have broader influence, mostly because of the platform that you're given in the microphone and less because of the individual policies. Now, if you are a head of a committee, you absolutely have tremendous influence on legislation. And certainly, if you make it to a position of being a minister, uh, within a ministry, you absolutely can really uh, drive real change. So you have to decide, are you a lifer? <laughs> and you're going to work your way towards that point or not? And in my case, I have to say, I loved every single moment of having the platform uh, in real time. And then since then, I've been blessed to be able to use the platform as former member of Knesset to do a lot of good without being boxed into the boundaries that politics puts you in and being part of a party and having to play the political games. I'm able to speak my mind as I choose to speak it, and I'm able to uh, work on whatever I feel I need to work on without thinking about what's going to happen to the coalition uh, along the way. So I, 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 there's two parts to it. One is while you're a member of Knesset, and then one is even after you're beyond your years in the Knesset. I read your book in American MK when it came out. Yeah. I bought it right away because <laughs> I've been here for almost 30 years. And I said, yeah, I got to run for the Knesset one day. You convinced me to never run for the Knesset. I'm so happy I accomplished I'm that. not <laughs> sleeping under my table at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, uh, there were those nights. And I, I definitely do recommend to anyone uh, who wants to understand what it's like in the Knesset. It's out there, uh, an American MK, and it really tells the story. I wrote it 
soon after I was in because I knew that I'd forget pretty quickly <laughs> about what a lot of those experiences were. But I think it does paint a picture of, of what it's like, what you can influence, what you can't, and, and gives people a real behind-the-scenes look at the Knesset. So the last question. Imagine you had a giant billboard that millions of Jews would stop for a few seconds and read the message on the billboard. What message would you put on your billboard? The, the billboard would absolutely say, be a part of what's happening in Israel, where prophecies and our destiny is coming true. And what does that mean to be a part? It means, first and foremost, if you're able to, uh, to move here, because moving here is how you can really be a part of it. When you move here, no matter what you're doing on your day-to-day, you are part of building a Jewish state in the land of Israel in the 21st century, and you're part of those prophecies coming, to, open prophecies uh, coming true. Uh, and you raise your family here with those values, and they're part of what's happening here, and every one of your children then plays a role. That, that's the greatest way you can play a role. If you can't for some reason, then I say come here to serve here, to volunteer here, uh, if you can support things that are happening here, and wherever you are around the world, be an advocate for Israel, a person who can, who's educated and stands up and you can be a soldier for Israel uh, wherever you are. But I always say to live in these most incredible of times and not stand up and be incredible is a colossal failure. Then you want to be able to look back and say, I was part of that, right? You can tell your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and beyond that, they can hear, you, you were part of creating the, the, the final stop. We have a long way to go here, but the destiny of the Jewish people, that is something which, who doesn't want to be part of that? And, and, and shrugging that and not owning up to it and not standing up and being counted is a tragedy of massive proportions, as opposed to saying, I'm going to stand up and be counted. I'm going to be part of it, hopefully living in Israel and playing my role here, whatever that is. But wherever you are around the world, making Israel central and the focus of your lives, then you can actually go to sleep at night and look back after 120 years and say, I played a role in the most incredible story in world history. Who doesn't want to be part of that? Beautiful. You did it. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. And thank God I pressed record. That was Dove Lipman, former member of Knesset, author of seven books, an international speaker on topics of Israel and Judaism. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. It was really a pleasure for me to speak with Dove. And if you'd like to hear more podcasts from yours truly, please check out my other podcast, The Hasidic Story Project, where every week I release a Hasidic story. There are now thousands of listeners to The Hasidic Story Project, and I'd love to have you be one as well. And make sure to check out my books on Amazon. You can find them by searching for Barack Holman, B-A-R-A-K-H-U-L-L-M-A-N. I have two memoirs, a third on the way. They're fun, they're easy to read, deep and entertaining. And I'd love to hear from you, my listeners. You can look me up on Facebook and send me a message, or send me an email as well. I'd love to hear from you. You'll notice that there's a big delay between the episodes. And that's just because I've been so busy with so many different projects, there's only so much I could do. But Bezat Hashem, there'll be more conversations coming. And thank you again for listening. <laughs>